0: I don't know whether you've ever had the phrase, the world doesn't revolve around you, said to you. I must have had that said to me four or five times a week as a teenager. I can just hear my mum's voice saying, the world doesn't revolve around you, over and over again. Can't remember any of the things that I was doing that made her say that, but I can definitely remember saying it. Certain parts of the town where if I'm driving past, I can visualise being in the back of the car with my mum saying, the world doesn't revolve around you. Now, if I'd been a teenager in 2023, I might have come back with something like, "mum". You're trying to squash my main character energy. Um, Now, this main character energy is something I've come across fairly recently. Main character energy—if you think it's a good thing—main character syndrome. If you're if you're criticising somebody else for it, um, it's the idea that you're the main character of your life. Other people are there as supporting actors or even just extras in the the story of your life. Now, it's a funny little way of identifying like a real thing which is we tend to interpret everything around us as being about us we think that other people are thinking about us way way more than they actually are so you send a text, you think they've seen that text, but why haven't they replied? We're not thinking for a second, oh, this person has their own life, and they might be doing something else that's more important than replying to my text and we'll get round to it at some point. We think, why are they ignoring me? Why haven't they texted back? They must be they must hate me. Or, I don't know how those things go. I never text anybody, so I don't know. Yeah. Um, they or I might come into church and think, Ian sat right in the front there, miles away from me. He never even looked at me, never thought about me. He's sitting over there because he hates me. When in reality, Ian hasn't thought about me at all in in terms of his choice of seat. He never does, and why should he? Um, But we always start to interpret everything as if I'm the main character. And what we've seen, as Michelle said so far in the book of Daniel, is a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has like, the most ma- main character energy you've ever seen. There's a bit of a difference between thinking, oh, other people should be thinking about me and setting up a giant golden statue of yourself and demanding that people worship um, worship it. Um, there's loads of online quizzes that I saw. Do you have main character energy? And I thought about writing some of them down, but I didn't bother. But that thing of, have you ever set up a giant statue and force people? That wasn't on any of the quizzes, but I'm pretty sure that would uh, qualify it. Now, this week, we've moved on to his son. And as we've seen there, it's exactly the same. That main character syndrome runs in the family. Um, Belshazzar, we don't hear as much about him. He's only in this one chapter, whereas we've had four chapters involving his his father, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, But we see he's inherited that same sense. He's the main character and other people are going to be uh, focused on him. So we're going to have a look through uh, Daniel chapter five. Um, This is the layout of where we're going, just in case you're interested. I've got three questions, two points and four tips. There you go. Now, for people who are trying to get out early, they're all short. Don't worry, Michelle. Um, but that's where, that's where we're going. So I'm not going to read the full thing out again, but I do just want to read the first uh, four verses there just to remind ourselves of the, the big um, issue here, what Belshazzar is doing wrong. And that leads to our first question. It says, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Now, Belshazzar's thrown this massive party here, a thousand of his noble people. Um, it's a lavish, large-scale party. It says that he drank wine with them. Some of the translations say he drank wine before them. It's like he's showing off. He's drinking wine in front of them. It's a lavish display of his own importance, his own power, his own glory. I've mentioned before that me and Jim used to uh, do a bit of DJing, and I still like like the, the um, following DJs on social media and seeing... Uh, different events. And one of the things that you see if if DJs are playing in an exclusive venue with a VIP area is you'll get people working behind the bar who are coming with like magnums of champagne or whatever with sparklers on them that are shooting sparklers into the areas that carry them to the VIP area. It's just like the definition of showing off like, oh look, these people can afford like the massive bottles of the best champagne so much so that we're going to put sparklers on them so that everybody can see um, where we're delivering them. Me and Jim never really got that in the Raglan Social Club. It was a bit of a, diff- bit of a different vibe, um, what we were doing. But the point is, that's what he's doing here. He's drinking wine before them. He's setting this party. It's the biggest party going to show his own importance. And so then he does something just to show off even further, which is to bring out these um, gold and silver goblets. Now, these are items that when Nebuchadnezzar um, conquered Jerusalem, he took all the best stuff. So he took a load of the treasure, a load of the important stuff um, out of the, the temple. They also took the best people. That's how Daniel was coming to be um, in um, Babylon. And so they get out these uh, goblets that had been in the temple in Jerusalem, and they start drinking out of those. Now, this isn't because they've run out of goblets. This is showing off. This is, we're going to take the most precious, the most sacred, holy things of this culture and we're going to start downing wine out of it. It was a display of his power, his glory. Now, I want to say we do this all the time. Now, I don't think any of us have gold and silver goblets from Jerusalem, but we do this exact thing all the time because what he's doing is he's taking things that should be used to glorify God or were designed to be used to glorify God, and he's using them in a selfish way to glorify himself. We do this all the time. So marriage is designed to glorify God, and you treat it like it's all about you. You're the main character, and you're thinking, "How about your? How can your spouse meet your needs? And if if they're not, then you're starting to think, "Have I married the wrong person? Or the time, the time that you've got is given to glorify God, and then you use it selfishly to serve your own agenda, and then you'll fit other things in if you can. Or your money that you've been given as a gift to glorify God, and you use it selfishly on yourself, and then if there's any left, then you might be able to give it towards God's purposes. Or friendships with other people designed to glorify God, and you use them to make yourself feel better, and then if people aren't meeting your needs, then you're going to cut them off and call them toxic. All the time we take things that should be used to glorify God, and we use them to glorify ourselves. We turn them in on ourselves. We make ourselves the main character. We use them in a selfish way. And then just to make it clear that like, what he's doing um, is um, the opposite of what these things are designed for. It says in verse 4, As they drank this wine, they praised gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. They start praising other so-called gods, and the emphasis here by all the materials is these are all things that are made out of created materials. These are all created things that they're praising, but they're ignoring the creator. That's the essence of sin, ignoring the creator and just devoting yourself, praising, worshipping the things he's created. And so that's my first observation, that's my first question for you to think about this week. In what ways do you do this? Like, in what ways do I do this? In what ways do I take God's gifts and ignore him as the giver? In what ways do I try and grab his glory for myself? That's question number one. Now this part is then interrupted by a bit of a weird situation. Fingers appear and there's writing gets uh, written on the wall and it terrifies the, the, the king. It terrifies Belshazzar. And so he gets all his wise men and everybody to try, try to sort it out, and they can't come up with a solution for it. And so then the queen, it's probably the queen mother, who around during uh, Daniel um, interacting with Nebuchadnezzar in the past, um, says to him, oh, there is somebody who will be able to sort this out, because there's a guy who's got a, um, a really good reputation, he's got skill, he's got wisdom, um, he can um, come and interpret this for you. And so Belshazzar brings him, and I'm just going to pick it up then at verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now, I've heard that you were able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Now, I just think it's really interesting that Daniel's name is remembered and his skill is recognised. And they recognise he's got skill in doing these things, solving difficult problems. He's got wisdom. But also that's associated with he's got the spirit of the gods in him. He, Daniel's got an excellent reputation. And part of that reputation is that every time he's done something, he said, oh, this is God doing it, not me. And that's been remembered. The king offers him um, these rewards if he can do it. And, and Daniel just says, no, you can, I will do it, but you can keep that stuff for yourself. He's not motivated by the financial rewards or the sort of reputational rewards of of being dressed in purple and given this high position. He's making it clear that God's wisdom can't be bought. He's going to give God's wisdom, but Belshazzar can't buy it by giving these gifts. Now, I think it's interesting that he's offered to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Daniel has previously been given high positions by King Nebuchadnezzar. It seems that he's not in one of those positions now. Like, but that doesn't make a difference to how he behaves. Like the reshuffle of the cabinet where he's been brought up to a high position, then now he's not, um, hasn't bothered him. He, he's continuing to serve God faithfully. He's not grasping for power. And he's not devastated when he isn't in the position of power. He continues just to serve God faithfully. The recognition in the high positions come and go for Daniel. Like he's in a high position at the end of this chapter. Then he's getting, uh, he's getting threatened with execution in the next chapter the position and power comes and goes for him, but his approach never changes. He continues to serve faithfully, whether he's in the limelight or whether he's in obscurity, because it's not about him, it's about the God that he serves. And so that's my second question. Are we willing to serve when it's recognized and when it's not? Are we willing to serve when somebody says thank you and when somebody doesn't? And so Daniel speaks to Belshazzar, and he runs him through some of the stuff that had happened with his father, Nebuchadnezzar, um, and he says, look, God gave him all the, 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 the reputation, the power, the, the greatness, the grandeur, like, he gave him all of that, but he became arrogant and hardened, uh, hardened with pride, it says in verse 20. And so he reminds him of the situation that we read about in the last chapter, um, where he sort of loses his mind and he's living wild like an animal. He's eating grass um, and he sort of um, has, a, has a breakdown until he then acknowledges that God is the most high and sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth. Um, and then he was restored to his previous position. And so then Daniel, after reminding him of, of that, speaks like pretty boldly to, to Belshazzar in verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself even though you knew all of this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, <clears throat> and you and your nobles, your wives and concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his, in his hand your life and all your ways." So he points out Nebuchadnezzar's pride and that God humbled him. And then he points out to Belshazzar that even though he knew all of that, he didn't learn the lesson. He's done exactly the same thing. And so the third question for us to think about this week is to think about what what lessons we can learn that God's showing us in the people around us. We should aim to learn from mistakes. Like Belshazzar should have learned from his father's mistakes. Now, I think there's a sort of prideful type of attitude that insists, oh, I've just got to make my own mistakes. Now, it's certainly possible that we can ignore loads and loads of examples and we only really learn a lesson when we make uh, the mistake ourselves, but that shouldn't be something we're aiming for. It certainly shouldn't be something we take pride in. By far, the better option is to see somebody make a mistake and learn from it and not make that mistake yourself. In Proverbs 17, uh, verse 10, it says, a wise person will learn more from a warning than a fool will learn from a hundred lashes. We're reading these stories, and we should take note not to fall into the same trap as Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Making our own mistakes is not a better option. So that's just my third question of things that stood out to me as I was reading through, what lessons do we need to learn from the examples God is showing us, it could be the examples that we're reading about in here, it could be examples of other people in our own families or uh, friends or other people in our lives, what lessons is God trying to um, help us to learn and, and how can we learn those lessons. So Daniel then interprets the um the writing that appeared on the wall. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, many, Tekel, Parson. And then he tells them what they mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you, should, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And then Belshazzar gives Daniel all the rewards that he, he said he would give him. And then we told him, verse 30, that very night... Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Two points from uh, this chapter. The first one is that God is on the throne. This has been the consistent point through every chapter we've read of this book so far. No matter who's actually on the physical throne in Babylon, God is in charge. In verse 18, it says, The Most High God, it, it was the Most High God who gave Nebuchadnezzar his position any glory and splendor that Nebuchadnezzar had had was a gift from God. Verse 21 described as the most high God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth, not just the kingdom in Babylon, not just his own people, the Israelites, sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. And verse 23 that we we just read a moment ago when Daniel's talking to Belshazzar and said, God holds your life and all your ways in his hand." Belshazzar is incredibly powerful and like seems really powerful and important at the time. He's throwing this lavish party. People think oh, that, he's the most powerful person around here. But his life and all his ways are in the palm of God's hand. Belshazzar is in and out of the story in one chapter for us. At the time, he would have seemed so, so powerful, but no matter how powerful the person seems at the time. When we read it like this from a distance, it's like a chapter. So it's 30 verses. Seems so massive and powerful at the time, but in reality, in comparison to God's eternal kingdom, his reign's like a blip, his reign is fleeting. It's a bit pathetic when it's viewed in the light of God's eternal kingdom. God is on the throne, no matter what powers, no matter um, what positions, reputation, what, whatever it is, God is on the throne. I've read this before, but I really like it, so I'm going to uh, read it again, which is just some lyrics from um, an artist called Shylin who says, Elvis is dead, Picasso is dead, Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin are dead, Marilyn Monroe is dead, however, Jesus is alive. Plato is dead, Socrates is dead, Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead, Nietzsche and Darwin are dead, however, Jesus is alive. Nero is dead, Constantine is dead, Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun are dead, Alexander the Great is dead, However, Jesus is alive. Pharaoh is dead. Cyrus is dead. Darius and Sinatra are dead. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. However, Jesus is alive. There's one kingdom that's just stretching out for eternity. And these other people are coming and going. It seemed, they seem massive. They seem powerful at the time. that They come and go, it's Jesus who's the one who's on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar have got main character syndrome. But God is the true main character he's on the throne, he's the one above everything, he's the one above everyone else, we're all characters in his story, that's point number one, God is on the throne, and point number two is what Daniel says to Belshazzar, therefore, because God's on the throne, we should humble ourselves, that's what we should do, God is on the throne, therefore, we should humble ourselves, As he says, verse 22, but you, Belshazzar's son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. That's what he should have done. He should have humbled himself with the knowledge um, that God was um, above his father and above him. And so that's what we should do in response. We should humble ourselves before God. We should glorify God instead of seeking his glory for ourselves. It's difficult to do, so that's where my four tips come in. I've got four tips on how we can humble ourselves um, before God who's on the throne. Tip number one is C.1, God is on the throne. The first step is acknowledging that, that God's greatness, glory, sovereignty, that he's above everyone and everything else. That's where our humility starts. That's why Daniel is humble, because he's got a clear view of who God is. No one ever sort of stands in front of the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls thinking, look how amazing I am. And I'm pretty sure, I've never been to either, but I'm pretty sure that's not because they've got a sign saying, make sure you approach this uh, like attraction humbly. It's because your attention's been taken by something that's just way more awesome um, than, uh, way more powerful, way more glorious than anything that exists in you. And that's how we grow in humility, is, is broadening our understanding of who God is. We won't grow in humility by constantly thinking about our, our own humility. Yes, it's it's definitely useful to consider our hearts. We definitely need to think about our own sin. But there's a saying from um, uh, an old writer called Robert Murray McShane that says, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. When he says that, he says, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And for all sinners, even the chief. Live in the smile of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. When the Holy Spirit's filling every chamber of our heart, when like Jesus fills every aspect of our vision then there's no room for our own pride it it, it sort of falls away the first tip is to keep looking at Christ remembering that Jesus is on the throne that's a grace church is structured in the way it is to try and help us to do that like on a Sunday we're setting aside this specific uh, couple of hours to, to come together and look at Jesus spend some specific time just thinking about him who he is and what he's done and the church is arranged into life groups, smaller groups, where uh, we can focus more time and attention on helping each other look at Christ. And, you know, We get together in a life group gathering to discuss the Bible and pray to help point each other towards Jesus. And then those relationships exist outside. That's so that we can um, spend informal time together. But all the time, our desire is that I'll be able to point that person towards Jesus and they'd be able to do the same for me. We want to get to know each other better so that we can point each other to Jesus better. It's easy to neglect all of those, like they're just the normal sort of rhythms of the church life. It's easy for those things to be neglected, or it's easy to do them but just to be going through the motions, or it's easy to do them and turn yourself into the main character, like is this meeting my needs? Jesus is the main character and we want to do everything we can to turn our attention repeatedly back to him. So that's Point number one is to recognise that God's on the throne. Point number two is from the, the the others are from this writing on the wall. So the first word is many. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Now, we're not in Belshazzar's situation where we're ruling a kingdom and literally um, that's going to come to an end. But we're all in the situation where our days are numbered. We just don't know what that number is. In Psalm 90, it says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's wise to remember that our days are limited. We'll grow in humility when we recognise that we're not unlimited. We are finite. Our lifetime is like a tiny blip in the course of human history, let alone the history of the universe. There's a saying, memento mori, which means remember death, which is a a concept that seemed to originate with the ancient Greeks but it it was uh, adapted and picked up by early Christians used to use it um, as a phrase and artwork on on graves and things like that um, memento mori remember death instead of ignoring the reality of death we should remember it to give us a reality check to snap us out of the ludicrous idea that we're invincible we're limited but we know God is who is unlimited we're finite but we know the infinite god one writer said think of death awareness as a ki- type kind of telescope to the naked eye the promises of Jesus can seem small, beyond my frame of view, remote and disconnected from what I see around me. They belong to some other world than the one I'm living in but when I learn to see the painful truth about death that begins to change. When I use the reality of death as a telescope, looking through it to grab hold of this image, Jesus comes forward and into focus, blown up to size so that he dominates my entire frame. We so should remember Jesus on the throne. We should. Remember that our days are numbered. Third tip, remember that we've been weighed and found wanting. That's the second word that was written. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. That second word to Belshazzar is also true of us. If your life is weighed on the scales of good and bad, we're going to be found wanting. We'll fail that test. Now, we know that even when I'm saying that, everything inside of us wants to resist that. You've got a little barrister in your ear now saying, oh, he's not right. But just think about it. Every, everything we've had, everything we've got, is a gift given by God, including our very life, including the breath that we're breathing right now. Have I used my life, that God has given me, in the way that He designed? No, I haven't. I've been, if I weighed on the scales, I'll be found wanting. Would I be happy for every thought, word, and deed of my life to be like laid out in front of us all now, and we'll pile them up on the scales of good and bad and work out if I've passed that? I'll skip that. I'll just tell you now. I'll I'll be weighed on the scales and found wanting. We'll grow in humility when we confront our own sin, when we stop trying to justify ourselves and and convince ourselves that we've tipped the scales in the right way. We just need to recognize that we've weighed on the scales and found wanting. Stop trying to justify ourselves and throw ourselves on God's mercy. And my final tip is just don't delay like we don't want to delay in dealing with this. this the final word, Passing. your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Belshazzar had this kingdom. It's going to be split up. It happens immediately. It happens that night. And that should be a warning to us that we don't have unlimited time. Now, God takes us all on a journey. You might be somebody here who's on a journey of working out what you think about Jesus, and, and that's great. You might be a Christian who's on a journey of of battling pride and growing in humility. That's great. Like, God does things in his own timing. I don't want to rush that. But don't let that process, that journey, fool us into thinking that there's unlimited time. There isn't. There is some urgency. If you're working out what you think about Jesus, you're doing that in order to make a decision at some point, not just to continue on that journey forever. We can't keep just putting off that decision as if you have unlimited time. Or if you're a Christian who's been convicted about pride in your own life, then then we need to have a sense of urgency in confronting our own sin. I don't just want to be convicted and remain in the same position. I'll give it as a prayer request every week in life room for the next 18 months and then be in the same position. I want to pray and take action empowered by the Holy Spirit to turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus in faith. So God is on the throne and therefore we should humble ourselves before him and to humble ourselves we should remember that he's on the throne, we should remember that our days are numbered, we should remember that we if we weighed on the scales will be found wanting and we shouldn't delay in doing something about it. But I'm aware of interesting he's four tips to become um less proud or more humble that we start the focus starts coming on ourselves again we we can't help it it always starts turning on ourselves and that's the problem in the first place and so I just want to finish if I'm saying like for every one look at ourselves we want to take 10 looks at Jesus I want to finish there by looking firmly at Jesus because in Jesus we see the best example of humility but not just an example for us to try and follow. We see somebody who actually died so that we can be forgiven for our lack of humility. Somebody who died so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit to become more humble. Remember, this this thing started because of these goblets and cups that Belshazzar got out at the party. He drank from those sacred cups that were intended to glorify God, but they he used to glorify himself. And that just got me thinking about cups and Jesus jesus drank from a cup at the last supper and said this is my blood that is poured out from you for you he also referred to his death elsewhere as a cup you said the disciples at one point uh, can you drink the cup that i'm about to drink he's talking about his death like belshazzar is like feeding his own glory by getting these brilliant cups out the cup that jesus drank was to lay aside his glory And die for us. Jesus drank from the cup of God's judgment. So that we can be free. Our days are numbered. He's infinite. But he humbled himself. He became like us. He limited himself by becoming like us. And he died in our place. So that we can now live for eternity with him. So yes our days are numbered in that sense. But because of what he's done. We live for eternity with him. We've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Jesus is the only person who would ever pass that scales test. But he's then exchanged that with us. Like that weighing on the scales holds no fear for me now because it was nailed to the cross. My set of scales was nailed to the cross. When we look at Jesus, we should think, right, there. don't delay. Why would we delay? I want to lay down my pride and look to Jesus again and again and again and that's what we're going to do is we close by singing in a moment just to respond to this I'm going to uh, read um some verses from Philippians and then and then pray um as I do that I'm going I'm going to kneel now I'm going to do that as just a, a symbol to myself to just remind myself that I'm I'm humbling myself before God feel free to join me there's no requirement to do that you might not be able to kneel which is fine you might not want to kneel that is fine nobody's going to be looking at who's kneeling who isn't but it's just an opportunity, with all those caveats being out there, if you want to join me in, in sort of giving just a physical sign that you're humbling yourself before God, then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray using these words from Philippians, and then we'll, we'll close by singing. Jesus, we, we want to have the same mindset as you. You were in very nature God, but you didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, you made yourself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. You humbled yourself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted you to the highest place and gave you the name that is above every name, that at your name every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that you, Jesus Christ, are Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, we acknowledge that so many, so, many, in so, so many times, in so many ways, we turn our attention in on ourselves. We take good gifts that you've given and we turn them in on ourselves. We, we take things that you've designed to glorify you and we use them to serve our own agendas. We're sorry for that, Lord. We throw ourselves on your mercy again. We want to become more and more humble. And so would you just expand our vision again of who you are? Would you remember that you're on the throne, that you're above everyone, everything else? We thank you for all the times when we rec- when we recognise our how our own pride has affected the way we've acted towards other people or the way we've spoken or the way we've thought <clears throat> that all of those weighing down the scales on the wrong side that all of those have been wiped away through what you did on the cross just as we go about our everyday sort of activities over the next week, Lord, just keep reminding us that you're on the throne, that you're above everything. Like the difficulties that we face, you're bigger, uh, you're above all of that. The good things that we enjoy, uh, you're uh, bigger and better than those things. Just keep our eyes on you. Amen.